out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of... Lloyd James, currently the front man with Crisis, but has been in lots of other bands before that moment, including Nevis, and also had a moment with Soul Invictus. So this is the interview. You'll find out lots more about his life, so I won't bore you with the intros. So after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Lloyd, it's over to you. Uh, yes, actually, I suppose really for me, because I was born in 1975, so I kind of missed out on a lot of the acts you mentioned at that particular point in time. But for me, it was really, I suppose, the mid to late 80s when um, things like the Smiths were around. That really sort of caught my attention when I first heard them on the radio. And um, in my sort of teenage years, I was a, I was a bit of a goth, basically. So I remember <laughs> when I first heard um, things like... Um, the mission and Susie and the Banshees on the on the chart show. I was completely sort of blown away by that. Like, I just couldn't understand what is this form of music, you know? Yeah, so very into that. And then from that kind of music, I then got into bands like Magazine and so on. Um, and that was a big sort of uh, changing thing for me, discovering bands from probably about ten years before my sort of time. And yes, uh, bands like Magazine and Wire, etc., and, and Joy Division. I was very into that sort of stuff. But also at the same time. There was sort of some bands around sort of um, at that time I was quite into bands like The Wedding Present. I was very keen on um, obviously very much fit into that C86 sort of uh, area. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he says laughing hysterically. Well, there was did you see the film that they made a few years ago on George Best, the album, which was quite a, a nice little kind of indie film that um, came out? And, I haven't uh, seen it yet. I, I, I would like to see it. I'm aware of it, but I've not actually had a chance to, to actually see it yet. But. Yes, it's it's surprisingly bizarre. Well, it's interesting that there was a lot of issues around the drummer. There was there was a big thing between the drummer and the producer, and yeah, and and you know, being an indie kid from that period, I just thought everybody just thrashed around, and it wasn't too too worried about being that clinical but um on this particular experience it was actually and the poor old drummer yeah. had to go but then i spoke to quite a few drummers in in the last five ten years and um there's been a lot of trauma actually and uh, <laughs> ended up in homelessness and drug addiction so um being a drummer is not always that easy so um well i'm sure no i, I mean I, I started out as a drummer actually in bands initially but um and i, I still love playing drums but i'm just not very good at it unfortunately <laughs> but uh, i would like to be doing it more but i just you know and did you um, did you have a musical family? Did your parents did they encourage your musical direction at all? Uh, to an extent, they were quite into music, not in a big way. My, my sister was uh, very musical. It is. I mean, she 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 now um, lectures in music. She's a um, a saxophonist. Um, but um, I was never really went down that route because I just wanted to sort of um, I wanted to play drums. But at school at, at that time, uh, drums weren't really considered a a proper instrument. So. Um, if, so even though every every lunchtime at school I'd be in the music room um, playing music with some school friends, but I, I was deemed as not being sort of you know playing a suitable instrument to be in the top set for my music lessons at school. So that kind of put me off music education for a, for a while. That cr- I, I was crushing. Still, yeah, it was it's, it was ridiculous. I mean, thankfully that that's that's been improved now a bit. With I think the education world has caught up in yes. a lot of ways with uh, with 
things like electric guitar, bass and drums being, um, you know, accepted as a legitimate musical instrument to learn. Yes, but so before we get to crisis, then, but you you have a whole musical world before the joining the the sort of the Brighton bass band, don't you? So you, you well, know, yeah, you... Um, I, I well, I basically I didn't I, I played in a few bands at school. I, I played drums and tried to write lyrics and so on, but they didn't really get very far with that. It was really just a sort of a hobby. And then, round about the mid nineties, when I moved to London, I um, started to sort of try and put together a band. And it was very much part of the kind of the sort of DIY scene that sort of um, existed at that time around kind of industrial and and related sorts of music. It was very um, kind of inspiring because I liked the fact there was still this uh, fanzine and sort of tape trading culture going on. You know, it was it felt very democratic, and you know, it was it was a, a great sort of little sort of period of time where people could still sort of. Um, make um a demo tape you know and sell it just to you in the post for like two pounds fifty where you'd send yes. a coin sell a tape to a bit of card you know <laughs> and i thought those times were really good because it, it was it really was open to everyone and the fanzines were very kind of inclusive about about stuff yes um, and and then sort of so when you got to that golden age of 16 18 did you leave school and go to college university or did you sort of go into trying to be in a band oh no well i i I left uh, um, Wales when I was um, 17 or 18. I went to university in London. Um, and then during my time at university, I was trying to kind of uh, get a band together with with one of my flatmates and my girlfriend at the time. <laughs> and uh, and we eventually succeeded. But it, uh, it was a, a learning process, you know. Yes, that time. So this was the John Major years, wasn't it? Britpop was at its height. Yeah, I... I Yes, Britpop was at its high. And even though I liked some of it, I felt very kind of like on the opposite side of, of things from that, you know, because you still had things like, um, you know, Oasis and Blur sort of having this false feud in the media and so on. Whereas um, outside of that, there was an awful lot of very interesting sort of independent music going on, you know. Um, I mean, other bands I liked at that sort of time who, who were going along alongside that. There was, I mean, I really loved gallon drunk you know they were um oh, one, yes. of, one of the best live bands i've ever seen I'd, I'd go and see them live regularly um it's a band called moonshake i was a big fan of i don't know if you recall them they were a great band it was a band that was put together by um the former singer of the wolfhounds yes after, david they, david they, Cal- was that dave callahan callahan yes yeah and mm. uh I thought I thought Moonshine were a really interesting group because they they weren't just sort of guitar centric, had interesting rhythms and so on. But um, yeah, I was into that sort of stuff. It was a band called Pram. I think they were very good as well around that time. Yes, were they on two two Pure records? Pram. Or yeah, was I think they were. I think they were from Birmingham and they were on two Pure. Yeah. yeah, I just seem to remember. I was just, I'm always very excited. I suppose that those two decades were particularly interesting for sort of bands, labels, venues as well. There seemed to be a sort of a bit of a golden period. And like you said, fanzines as well. And thankfully, people are now writing books and bringing out films of that decade or those decades, yeah. which I think is just marvellous for people like me who likes to sit in and, and watch docu- documentaries on the new town neurotics and stuff like that. That's, yeah, that's yeah. quality viewing. So that's all good. So your first band, this is with Joanne Owen. Was that's this your, right, yeah. This was um, the, the band that sort of launched your kind of musical world. Well, yeah, I mean, it started out, we, we had a little band uh, before then, which just made a few demo tapes. And 
it sounded atrocious to be honest but then um after that we, we decided okay we've made some few mistakes here we know what we want to do um and it was that it was that wonderful period of time where um home recording equipment had just become that right balance between affordable um and not rubbish <laughs> so you you actually could in your own home record something of cd quality and um also at that time you could actually go and um get cds pressed um directly yourself um at a relatively affordable um price at a time when people still bought cds so it was just that perfect balance really so i think we really benefited from that so yes so we had a band called nevis which i'm which still exists um to this day actually but um and we uh hadn't played any gigs or anything but i just decided right i want to make an album <laughs> so i um took out a bank loan um under false pretenses and just to get the equipment needed just to get this album recorded um and i didn't think there'd be any audience for it whatsoever i really thought it would go nowhere um we were quite fortunate in that a friend of a friend worked at um a professional recording studio so we we snuck in at night on madness's downtime when they were recording an album to actually get the thing mastered and um put it out and luckily a distributor in italy um heard it and bought all the copies off me so that was quite a relief <laughs> my god that's great isn't it because i've often found that a lot of bands have have a country that takes them to to heart actually there was a i think it was shelly ann orphan from the 80s and italy yeah. apparently they're big in italy <laughs> And, yeah, this uh, is it. I mean, I suppose certain certain bands seem to, seem to resonate there a bit, and I think with, with Nevis, it really sort of seemed to catch on in Italy and Germany initially, at least. You know. Yes, and was that recorded at the Engine Room in London with Mark Mark Bishop? Was he the engineer? Uh, Mark Bishop uh, wasn't the recording engineer, but he did help us get the thing mastered. Um, so he actually did the mastering. Um, Probably shouldn't say this because I think he did it. It's a bit cheekily, but, <laughs> but um, he did it sort of uh, when he really probably shouldn't have been doing it. But um, it was very good. It's quite exciting to actually be into um, a professional recording studio for the first time and actually, you know, be in that environment was quite a, a interesting thing. Yes, there's been some really, there's quite a few bands who've had to sort of go in at night and just spend, you know, that was the only time they were going to be able to record their album. And then there was a Liverpool band called It's Immaterial that were, had gone to America to record an album with a you know name producer. I think a member of Talking Heads, but they really hated it. But they had to go along with it. And then in the evening, when he went home, they they recorded what they wanted, and then used that recording rather than this this professional one that was being done during the day, which sounded completely bonkers. But yes, you know yeah. they got what they wanted. So I think you have to duck and dive, really, don't you? And absolutely, get, yeah. You know, in in this world. So when that album came out, then you had quite a following. Well, I'm not well. Initially, it was just into a void, and a, a lot of people had recommended that I don't do it because I thought it sounded quite strange. <laughs> I didn't really know what sort of music it was, um, and I was probably quite, you know, awkward about the artwork. I had an idea for the artwork. I wanted just a completely plain green sleeve, you know. Um, so, but I was just very fortunate. There was just um, um, uh, this the, the the guy from Ender Records in. Um, in Italy, just heard it and liked it. And um, he then, you know, sent a few copies to other people who liked it and sort of promoted it and stuck up for it. So um, it, it was quite fortunate it caught on. I mean, at the time, I didn't really know what sort of music it was. 
but we immediately got comparisons to other groups I hadn't really listened to that much before. And um, so, we, we, so we got kind of pigeonholed a bit <laughs> um, in a way that I hadn't expected. But it's, it was still useful to have um, a scene that will actually take you in as part of it, you know? Yeah, so absolutely. I think in that C86 world, no one wanted to be on that cassette, but then we're very grateful that they were on that cassette because then it meant that, you know, the kids at the time slightly, you know, would have would have come across those other bands that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And yeah. bands that said they didn't want to be on the cassette really regretted it after afterwards because they thought, oh, God, we just shot ourselves in the foot. The yeah, joys of yeah. youth, really. But you, it you is. know, like a lot of bands, they have that five-year narrative, don't they? And you, you know, you obviously were very productive during that period, weren't you? I think we had, yeah, we had a very productive, um, probably about eight years, eight, ten years, maybe. Um, so we did um, a series of albums quite quickly. I mean, we, we weren't playing an awful lot of gigs. Um, we would just do periodic trips over to... Europe really for gigs, but gigs in the UK were normally much smaller than ones um, in Europe. Um, yes, but at the time, uh, both Joanne and I really enjoyed. Um, you know, we, we were both kind of Europhiles, really. So we we just loved being able to to go abroad, um, meet some nice people, have some nice food, <laughs> have a little holiday. It was great. <laughs> and then, did you sort of? also flirt with other bands as well and sort of um, find yourself guesting on other ba- other albums? Yes, I've done that a bit. Um, I mean, I suppose the first time I did that, I did some things like, I did some vocals for this um, Italian um, electronic band called Curly and Camera, who again in the UK, people haven't really heard of that much, but they were hugely popular in, in Germany and, and Italy. Um, and what else have I done? I... I I briefly played in a few other groups. I played with um, uh, Son of Victors briefly on a couple of occasions, which is how I got to know Tony Wakeford from Crisis. Yes. And um, I also, for about 16 years, I played drums for Rose McDowell, you know, formerly of Strawberry Switchblade. Um, and that was great, actually. Um, it was a really enjoyable time in that band. Um, yes. That's good. God, Rose. My God, what a band. What a sound. What a scene. Yeah, God. She's amazing. I mean, I mean, Rose is an absolutely wonderful voice. Her voice is just incredible. And uh, she's a lovely person. And uh, I was very pleased to get her onto uh, a Nevis album, actually, for, for, for some extra vocals. That was very good. Yes. And then how did Crisis, this, this kind of band from the mid to late 70s, come into your life? Well, I suppose um, it was around about 20, no, I think about 2015 or 16, because I was a fan of Crisis, um, I, I kind of, they're kind of one of those bands I always found really fascinating because the music was was sort of right up my street. You know, it was kind of like a slightly messier version of Wire or Gang of Four in places, you know, but mm. they had these kind of um, vocals on them, which were incredibly um, direct um lyrically just basically political hectoring you know in, in terms of the, of the lyrics um but sort of delivered in this almost kind of oi type voice which seemed yes. at odds with the music so i always found that kind of those, those that kind of tension in, in the in the music quite interesting um and um so i was, I was a fan of them, them anyway and you know i was quite interested to, when i first met tony wakeford i was more to be honest i was more impressed by the fact he was in crisis than the fact he'd been in all these other groups but um and uh so i'd been to see this group called 1984 
which consisted of Tony and Clive and a couple of different drummers at different times. And they were just playing um, a set consisting of mostly old crisis material. And I thought, well, I've got to see this band. I, you know, I, I never thought I'd get to hear these songs played live. So I saw them play a few times. And I think we even did a few gigs together with, with my, uh, my own band, Nevis, playing with them. And then I think what happened was um, they were playing um, some gigs in Italy. And against their wishes, the promoters kept billing the concerts as crisis rather than right. 984. So I think eventually Tony and Clive just thought, well, look, we can't stop them doing this. We may as well just call it crisis. <laughs> and um, so at that point, they decided to get in um, a singer. And I think they also approached uh, one of the original drummers from the band, uh, Luke Rendell. Um, and he was originally going to be drumming in the version of the band I joined. Um, but I think that that didn't work out for for reasons I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about. Um, so we, we ended up with a band which consisted of um, Clive, Tony and I, uh, plus Igor on drums who would come in. So um, it's a bit odd because it's it's a bit strange having only one original member of the group in, in the band. <laughs> but um, yes. having said that, I suppose, you know, given that the band, even back in the, in the 70s, had a series of drummers and a series of singers anyway, I suppose it's just in that same trajectory. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite an interesting one because I sort of a few years ago, obviously being slightly older, but um, was a little bit curious with some of my 70s bands that I didn't particularly like, but they were on the radio, like the Rubettes and Shawadi Wadi and the Bay City Rollers. And um, so I sort of managed to interview quite a few of these people just to find out more. And then I sort of realised, I think there was like four versions of the Rubettes. I thought that's amazing, wow. actually. And I think there were two versions of the of um, the Bay City Rollers at one stage. So it was all, you know, and I think there's two versions of Barclay James Harvest as well, yeah, which is, yeah. is kind of, so I think it's kind of interesting. But then when we listen to classical music, obviously the composer and everybody who originally recorded, well, you know, played those songs are long gone. So, you know, it's interesting that kind of ownership of who really, you know, has the real essence of a band. And I think when there was the the first tribute bands, it all seemed really peculiar. But I think slowly over time, we begin to relax on that slightly, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, I do find it a little odd. I mean, to be perfectly honest, even though I love singing the old Crisis songs um, live, because they're great songs, I always love them, some in particular. But I probably do enjoy more uh, doing our new material and we're being quite lucky and that seems to seems to be going down quite well with audiences we haven't had any complaints somewhere off anyway and but I'm really happy with the songs we've developed since 2017. Yes um, you've been you've been very prolific actually to, having new members does that sort of help the you know Tony and and his kind of direction of the band and a bit of enthusiasm because most indie bands even with the original members, don't really want to reform just to play their old hits. Because I think no. they, I don't. Well, well, I, think, I think to be honest, I think what's really helped with this version of Crisis is that the band lineup we have now, which is um, uh, Tony and Clive and myself uh, plus um, Laura on drums, it's just a really good fit um, uh, personally. You know, I think we just get on and we have fun, and it's just it's just fun and funny. Um, to actually play and we just really enjoy it you know so I think even if we didn't have gigs today we'd probably still be doing rehearsals because it's just <laughs> we just enjoy it you know yeah um, so I, I think it's it's you know it's, it's it's very hard to find a band 
with the right mix of personalities. Um, and I think in crisis now, everyone's quite different, but complements each other in such a way that it just works fine. You know, we've never had any fallings out or anything. It's all been very easy, which is unusual for most bands, I think. Yes. Well, I think a few people have, you know, who were the kind of essence of a band would like, you know, after the that period, then, you know, the post post-punk, no, post post-band period. Sort of thing. I'd like to play music again. I like to sort of. I wrote those songs, so in a way, I feel like I should play them. But the the relationship with the other members of the band is such that it's not going to take much for the whole thing to explode again. And all the issues that happened the first time, even if it was twenty or thirty years ago, are still going to surface. So it's almost easier to almost have start with a fresh, but with the member who probably was the creative driving force of a band, and then then it can sort of morph and change. And, you know, I think that that probably is a lot easier unless you can all just get on. But, you know, let's face it, you know, we're human yeah, it's, beings. It's just difficult. And also as well, I mean, and people's lives just change, you know, and um, some people um, want to be playing in a band for a period of time. And after a certain point in time, maybe their life changes, their priorities change, and they just don't want to do it anymore. So you have to get someone else in at that point, you know. Yes. And how do you, and, and with fans who obviously go back decades with the band, how do they sort of relate to the the kind of changes in the lineup and the and the new material? Well, I was very apprehensive about that at first. Um, I thought, it was, you know, I thought uh, they were, I'd see a bit of a, a resistance to me singing with Crisis. But the first gig I did with them, which I think was uh, October 2017, I think, and was actually in Guildford, where Crisis are from originally. So um, I was quite nervous about that. And then when I arrived at the venue, the original singer Fraser was in the audience. <laughs> and uh, but um, but actually, as it turns out, he was a very nice chap. I had a nice chat with him. He had some words of encouragement for me, and uh, I actually came up and sang one song as well. Um, so that was good. But um, I was a bit nervous about how some of the old sort of hardcore Crisis fans from back in the seventies would respond. And I do remember being a bit nervous at one point in the set when a very large, uh, tall, big, bald chap was picked up one of the crash barriers, looked like he was about to throw it at me. But I found out later he was just doing that out of um, exuberance rather than oh, anger. what a relief. <laughs> yes, it's, but it's kind of interesting because I think I was I was a drummer called Jamie Oliver, not the, you know, the, that, the other Jamie Oliver. And um, he'd been in a lot of punk bands and you know, found that I think it was a UK subs and there was a sort of element who were quite nationalistic and he he posted something which didn't go well and was kind of asked to leave the band. So it's kind of often, you know, it, we, we live in these these tricky times, don't we? We have to yeah. be very careful. What well, we... I, think, I think those issues were difficult with crisis because even though they were obviously very much a, um, a socialist group, you know, with various forms of, of Marxists and other kinds of socialists in the group who probably didn't all agree between each other at the time anyway, back in the 70s. Um, even though they were very much a political anti-racist uh, group, um, in the 70s they still nevertheless seemed to attract a certain kind of uh, right-wing following as well as a left-wing following. So that I think their gigs in the 70s tended to be quite violent. Um, I'm glad to say they're not anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I've not seen any of that in my time in the band, anyway. So. Well, no, that 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 would just be unpleasant, wouldn't it, and un yeah. unreasonable. So, with with because I, I noticed that you've got a single, and I was just listening to it 
um, Escalator that came out two years ago, didn't it, on Wooden Lung Records? That was an EP. Yeah. Is it the case that you've got, I know you've got some dates next year. Have you got more material that you're looking to record over the winter and release next year? Yes, we've got um, a few new songs. I mean, what we hope to do is um, is do probably a mini album, possibly another EP. So we want to get five or six or seven songs. We've got some rehearsals booked in to get those sort of um, fine tuning on some new songs done in November. Then in December, we've, we've got some studio time booked to uh, to get a pile of those recorded. Yes. And is it the case that, you know, with the John Peel session that came out in 78, only 45 years ago, um, is, that, is that ever going to be released as a sort of uh, a proper EP or single or anything like that? Well, I I doubt it because basically it's been um, quite commonly available for years anyway because the um, crisis singles that came out, the second and third singles, um, they are just the Peel Sessions, you know, because um, uh, one of the members of Crisis at the time, just after they recorded their Peel Session, I think they um, bought the tape of it off the BBC directly for quite a reasonable sum because they worked out it would actually be cheaper to do that than record the songs again. Yes. So I think Crisis have actually owned those recordings um, since probably 1978, 79. Yes. And with your other musical, because you've got another, your other musical project, is that still also an ongoing concern? Uh, well, Nevis is an ongoing concern still, but it has slowed down somewhat, basically because I've had a bit of a writer's block for the last year and a half. Um, but apart from that, we've actually got an album that's mostly finished, but um, just got three more songs that I need to write lyrics for. But I'm just, I've not had much joy in coming up with suitable words for that. So I don't want to force it. I'd rather let it happen as it yes. should do. So because I was listening to Setbacks, is that going to be a track on the new album? Uh, that was the plan. Um and it, it may well still be, actually. Um, I think if it does end up on the on the next album, it may be in a slightly different uh, mix. Um, but the plan is for that to be on the next album. However, I'm just at the moment, I'm thinking I'm not going to rush anything. I may even take some of the other recordings and issue them as, a, as an EP. Um, but yes, I, I want to wait until I've, I'm comfortable with a whole set of, um, of, of pieces to put together, you know, before another album comes out. I don't want to force it. Um, yeah. Yes, God, the, the, I know that the the joy of creativity is quite a hard one. What's the story? Because I was I was listening to the song and reading the lyrics of her simple story in an aircraft strap. What was what was where did that inspiration come from? Uh, well, actually, um, this might sort of scupper it a bit, I suppose. But um, I uh, it it was actually written during the first lockdown, that um, start of twenty twenty, and I basically saved up a pile of um, uh, crossword clues from cryptic cross crosswords and kind of mangled them all up together and then just kept remangling them and reordering them until I could sort of sentences began to form and right. I could then turn them into and then, and, until a kind of a sort of narrative started to appear yes um, I've got something you. I, I like to do quite a lot it's just sort of jumble stuff up until uh, in, until you almost start to imagine a story in it and then focus on those bits and then just try and keep it there. So a story is implied, but it's not actually really saying anything. It's right. So the Frenchman took a trip for a binder of lies. I mean, all of those things don't have any precise meaning at the point they were written, but they're the kind of thing you can hear. And then you can then 
your brain tries to make sense of it in context. So it just happens to sort of, it sounds like some kind of tale of espionage or something. You know? Yes. And, well, uh, yes, I don't know. That's what I, that's what I was thinking. Because actually, you know, being a David Bowie fan, obviously we all saw him with his big scissors cutting up, you know, lyrics, Dintian lines, and then jungle putting them in a jumble and then sort of seeing what came out. So do you, you also use that kind of cut out technique at times when you're finding it particularly difficult to, to sort of work out what you're going to um, oh, yeah. try? I mean, I, I, I love using those techniques anyway. I mean, and not just the words as well, but um, there's, there's a few other musical projects I've been involved in um, over the years, which are more sort of abstract sort of experimental instrumental music. And for those, I very much like applying kind of, um, aleatory sort of methods to composing things. So you'll, you'll, you'll just um, randomize some numbers somehow. Yes. And then turn those into a set of parameters for something and then try and operate within that, if that makes any sense. So um, I kind of like um, pieces of music which are composed in that kind of way, you know. And do you ever sort of write with other people or do you write on your own and then bring the music to the lyrics later? Um, Lyric-wise, I don't think I've done much writing with other people. I'd find that really hard, because I think with words, I get very precious about them, and, and it has to be just me. Um, but with, with music, no, I, I very much enjoy sort of, you know, creating stuff with other people. Yes. I mean, I mean, part, part of the of the real fun of being in a band is having a, a bit of an idea, or somebody else has a bit of an idea, and then somebody else adds to it, someone else changes it a bit and next thing you know you've got um um a great bit of music which is created by not one person but by everyone together you know that's a it's a good feeling and i think that's one of the the nicest things about being in a band yes well i thought bowie at some of his periods especially the 70s had that kind of magic realism to it which was you know it's all very abstract but the lyrics those lines just had that kind of Yes, that's a great line. I'm not sure what it means, but it sort of fits in with the rest of the yeah. song. And it's, you know, but I often wonder what it would be like, what it's like for a creative person trying to create a song, because we often hear those classics. You wonder why they are classics, whereas a lot of songs are, you know, just like, well, they're OK. They've got all the bits, but that hasn't given it something slightly magical, which. Kind yeah, of... it's difficult. I mean, I suppose in in the kind of more odd bits of lyric writing I've done, like mainly for the earliest of Nevis. There's an element in that which people tend to sort of um tend to describe as maybe surreal or something, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's surreal. But I, I would say there's probably an influence there from I mean I suppose a lot of my favorite writers are uh writers of prose from Central Europe really, you know, and um or um so I think there's an element of this kind of of, of the absurd. Uh, or, but also being part of an observation, you know. So I kind of tend to sort of do that kind of stuff habitually, really. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out in this creative journey, is there anything in particular that you've discovered in the last in X amount of decades that you think, God, oh, that would have been a really good thing to have known when I was a bit younger? I would have told him, for God's sake, learn to play guitar. <laughs> because <laughs> I had to learn it much later in life and it's a pain then but if I was 16 and I'd been able to play um, guitar or a keyboard it would have been much easier much earlier for me to then go and uh, document and put across any musical ideas I had was I was trying to do that by just using 
um, drum machine and, <laughs> um, you know, just trying to persuade people. Uh, yes. But just, is... just having those basic skills with a versatile instrument. Because when I was when I was uh, very young, I learned, you know, learned drums a bit. I learned to play trombone a little bit and violin. But in terms of working together with a band in a kind of a popular music sort of idiom, just having guitar or keyboard skills is just so useful. Yes, it would have been cool. Because you obviously, with with your band, it's often referred to as neo-folk, isn't it? Which is a yeah. strange label. Do you feel a I've, bit uncomfortable with that kind of? Yeah, very. <laughs> I don't like that at all. I mean, I, I've, I've nothing against folk music. Um, uh, I, I like I like a lot of folk music, but um, but the stuff I do really isn't folk music. It's 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 very modernist music, I suppose, really. But um, it just I suppose because it happens to have an acoustic guitar, and I've got a relatively deep voice, and there are other other groups in that area um you know in who, who get called neo-folk and i suppose there's a, a surface similarity in some of the sounds you know with the acoustic guitar yes. and because i've 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 done music with some people from that area as well so i suppose that's um that's it i mean i don't really mind having that label but um i just don't think it applies to the nevis really no and does um um, um with Either band. Have you done much touring abroad, either in Europe or America? Uh, yes, I think with Nevis, we've probably played most of our of our gigs um, abroad. That's where we tend to sort of get um, more interest. Yes. Um, and I I love to do that. You know, we've, we've you know, I've, and I was I've also been very fortunate as well with um, uh, just how much I've got to travel with Nevis. You know, I mean, just doing things like. A little mini tour I did once, entirely solo set, uh, played in far north of Norway one day, and then the following day I was playing in Odessa in Ukraine, you know, um, having not slept in between gigs, you know, and just to have that chance to actually travel and uh, see just contrasting parts of, of Europe in, in that way was was really glorious. Yeah, because there's a few bands from that period, like... Um... Sad Lovers and Giants, Snake mm. Corpse. There was another one, and also the Trees, which yeah. are much bigger in Europe. You know, they oh, are, yeah. I mean, they re, they reform for Europe. Do a couple of dates there, and that's like, oh well, we'll just come home. We're not even going to bother with the UK. So it's kind of interesting that your your band has also got a similar path. Yeah, I mean, and, and also the Trees. Actually, um, I mean, I I do like well, I have actually met a couple of them once or twice. Very nice chaps. But um, yeah, I, I can see actually how someone could could bracket Nevis in the same category as them, whatever that category is. I don't know, <laughs> but I can see there's possibly some similarity there. But and again, so I, I can understand how yeah you have a similar kind of audience for for, uh, for that sort of stuff um, in in mainland Europe. I think I, I sort of would definitely wouldn't mention neo folk. I kind of think I find it sort of more sophisticated pop. Really, it's slightly more something quite. There's a gravitas to those bands, which you know you wouldn't get with. We've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> or the wedding present, really. But <laughs> you know, indeed. but but there's a sort of like God. These, these guys probably read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but having said that, I think with the, with a band like the wedding present, I mean, some of that has real gravitas, but in an emotional sense. Because yes. I mean, some of the songs on Bizarro, their second album, um, there's some really heart-wrenching emotional lines on there and the way it's delivered you know and obviously David Gedge is a, 
a literate man, you know, he knows yes. how to uh, how to how to craft a phrase, doesn't he? So, oh, absolutely. And with because um, I know in Las Vegas they um, they've got the punk rock museum, and they also have punk and a punk bowling weekend. Have you ever sort of been asked to play or do anything in that kind of vicinity in the U- USA? Uh, we have had offers for some gigs in the US um, and Canada, but it's just never really proven possible for a combination of reasons, mainly financial ones, and also some visa reasons I probably can't go into. <laughs> um, but so I, I, I don't think um, a tour of America is going to be on the cards, really. Possibly Canada. That might that might still happen. Yes. Um, but uh, but also as well, I mean, um, our um, our glorious leader uh, Tony Wakeford, who's the main sort of songwriter and founder of Crisis, he doesn't like to travel too much these days. You know, he's um, a little bit older than the rest of us in the group, and he's got a few little um, health issues um, which keep him from being able to travel as freely as he as you might like to. So yes. we're not going to be doing a huge amount of, 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 of gigs or lengthy tours anytime soon. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Massive thank you, as always, to Lloyd James for giving me the time for that. If you want to find out any more information, uh, various band camp pages are a good place to start, especially Nevis and um, also Crisis. So uh, do check them out. And I think... Um, Soul Invictus is on Spotify and probably Crisis is as well. So there you go. This has been the C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.